You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptising. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means when translated Peter. Let's pray together. Father, we really want you to speak to us today, uh, reveal who you are um, and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you want? 
That was the question that Jesus asked Andrew and his mate, wasn't it? When they rocked up to him. What do you want? It's a good open question. If you could have anything at the start of this new year, what would it be? I'll give you a minute to chat to the person next to you to answer that question. What do you want? Okay. Well, as I was growing up, I remember one thing I wanted probably more than anything else was to be noticed, to be desired, to be wanted. Being the youngest of five kids, I would always uh, watch as my older siblings went to things before me, got to play sports before me, drove before me, all these things. And I was like, ah, when am I going to be invited out? When am I going to get to do these things? When am I going to be wanted? I kind of felt it with a, a best friend neighbour growing up too, and even a best schoolmate, who I was good friends with, but kind of, you know, when someone cooler came along, felt like I was quickly ditched and moved on for the cooler person. I wanted desperately to be desired and wanted, but I got it in a very clear way through my mum. She was very affectionate and kind, and I always felt wanted when I was around her. But when I was 15, she died. And it was the most acute time in my life that I think I felt that feeling of really wanting to be held, embraced, desired, wanted. And it was during that time alone that I stumbled into the online world of porn. And at that time, these people kind of saying, I notice you. I want you, I desire you. Won't hold anything back for you. And it felt good at first. But through a period of about six months, I went back and forth, up and down, feeling relief, followed by feelings of regret. I knew it was a fake embrace, but I didn't have the courage to come into the light and be honest about what I was going through. There was parts of me that I wanted to be noticed, but other parts I really didn't want to be noticed. I thought if the real me, if everything was exposed, people would be repulsed. I thought, is there someone who would see everything about me and yet would embrace all of me? I don't know if you've felt similar to me. Maybe you've had similar struggles or things that I've had. But I want to ask that question, is there something much deeper that we all need that's beyond our personal preference of what we all want and actually is deeply what we all want deep down? Well, John says in our passage, look, the Lamb of God, and he says it twice in verse 29 and 36, the Lamb of God. And it's quite interesting because it's the only, only place in John and in all the Gospels where Jesus has called this title. The only spot is in this chapter of John, and he says it twice. And that should get our alarm bells up. This is important, this title that John's calling Jesus. You know, he could have used from the introduction to John that Aaron's been taking us through. Jesus, there's the word of God. Jesus, there's the life of God, the light of God, or the word, the son of God. You know, the only son of the father, verse 18. But no, he says, look, 
the Lamb of God. So in order for us to understand this, the meaning of this Lamb and to get the most out of it, we need to see where this image and this metaphor of the Lamb comes from. And it's part of a bigger story because the whole Bible is one unified story centering upon Christ. And it could be said that the whole Bible is the story of the Lamb. And there's a number of chapters to that story. So let's walk through a few of those chapters and see if we can find the answer as to why John wants us to know that's the Lamb of God. The first chapter is Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. In this first chapter of the story of the Lamb, God has come to Abraham his promise to bless him and his family and through his offspring to bring blessing to the whole earth, which is a great promise, a great affirmation that, yes, I want you. I want, a bless, I want to bless you. But in Genesis 22, Abraham comes to, uh, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son whom you love, go up to a mountain that I'll show you and offer him to me as a burnt offering. A sacrifice. I don't know about you, but when you hear that, it's shocking and potentially repulsive to many of us and many people in our society for sure. Because that kind of request to offer up your own son whom you love as a sacrifice, I mean, I'm, I'm a dad, and yeah, I feel that the weight of that request. And, and in our culture, there's a couple of things that their culture are different to ours that will help us understand. Because a lot of people think, well, Abraham was, would have been just repulsed by this idea. But actually, when we, when we think about it, he lived in a culture where it was a much more communal understanding of identity. So they didn't see themselves primarily just as I'm myself. They saw themselves as part of a family unit. And so the things that I did, both good and bad, didn't just affect me, they affected the family around me. And especially this idea of the firstborn son, it carried, the firstborn son carried the identity of the family, the hopes and dreams of the family, and also the the good and the bad of you as parents were kind of, you know, carried on and embodied in your son, in the firstborn. And so God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, it's payment time for your sins. Go and give me your son, whom you love. And for us, there's a couple of things that are hard for us to understand in our culture. Like, why would, why would that be, why, why would there be such a punishment for sin? And it's something for us to grapple with a lot. But the clear message of this chapter is that God is the one who gives life and everything belongs to him. And in return, he asks us from the very first chapter of the Bible, in return, to love God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And the reality and the fact is that we all fall short of that. And we bring damage into the relationship. It's like when, we, when you hit a glass with something, it's irreparable that damage that's caused, and it leads to death. Repeatedly, the Bible says, sin leads to death. And the punishment of sin is death. Justice demands that wrongdoing 
be punished, that there's a debt. Now, Abraham, I think, understands this. He lives in a culture that understands this. And so he goes up the mountain, and to the high point of Genesis 22, they're on the way up, and Isaac says to Abraham, Dad, we've got the wood, we've got the, uh, we've got the fire starter for the fire, and we've got the knife. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, Son, God himself will provide the lamb. <laughs> and this is quite astonishing that he is able to say that on the way up, knowing that God's asked him that his own son is the lamb. But he says it in faith, and we read the story, it goes on, and the lamb doesn't get provided. Abraham goes up top of the mountain, binds up his son, and he's ready to offer up his own son as the payment for his sin. But at the last moment, God steps in and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Don't do anything. Don't touch the child. I know now that you fear me. You understand the seriousness of sin. You understand the debt that is owed for sin. And you were willing to offer up your own son whom you love. And there was a saying after this occasion that the Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So that's the first chapter in the story of the Lamb that we learn about. There is a debt that every family on earth owes to God. And it's the debt that sin creates. And it, the debt is death. The second chapter is Exodus 12, where again, in Egypt, Moses is there and he's acting as the saviour for the deliverance of God's people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And again, God demands the firstborn. The final plague on Pharaoh and the people before he would let them go, God said, tonight I will come into Egypt, I will send the destroyer. In other words, it's almost like the future day of judgment is being brought forward into a specific time and specific place on a day in Egypt. The destroyer will come and God says, no one will stand. Every family that's in this country of Egypt will have the firstborn son die. When the destroyer comes, when judgment comes, no one will be able to stand. It's not that the Egyptians were good and the Israelites were bad. Sure, the Egyptians were the perpetrators of slavery and the, the um, Israelites were the, uh, were the victims of that slavery. But this final plague, God says clearly, there is a deeper issue that is a leveling point for all humanity. Yes, it's amazing the deliverance that God offered the Israelites at the Passover. But there's even a deeper deliverance that we need. And it's from sin. And God says, there's a way that the firstborn son can be spared. If you, every family of you Israelites, take a lamb, a year old lamb, a spotless lamb, kill it, eat the lamb together as a family, and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of your house. And when the destroyer comes... Make sure you are not outside of your house, he says to them. Stay inside the house, and every family that has the blood of the lamb over it will be spared. The firstborn son will not be killed. 
So we see from this second chapter of the story of the Lamb that, yes, there's a death. Again, that's repeated. But there can be a substitute. An innocent Lamb can be a substitute for the dead of sin. You know, slavery was a massive problem, as I said, but not the greatest one. A greater deliverance is needed. Some of you might have thought in the answer to the first question, oh man, I just, if there's one thing I want at the moment, it's for COVID to be gone. And as, as amazing as that deliverance would be from the world for to be delivered from COVID, we still would need a much deeper deliverance than that. A spiritual sickness that needs to be dealt with. Uh, <clears throat> recently I was away, we were away at Benalla on a work trip, physio work trip, and we stayed in an Airbnb with, with, with a farm, there were lots of sheep running around and lambs and we tried to catch them but we just couldn't, the lambs kept running away. Uh, but on the final day as we left, there was a lamb on the side of the road and as we were driving up to it, it seemed like it was walking towards us and so intrigued, we pulled over, I got out, went to pick up the lamb and yeah, Cuddled it, I was thinking, gee, half my luck, get to cuddle a beautiful, beautiful lamb on our last day. But then I began to smell something. It's like, ugh, what's that? And shortly noticed that at the back of this lamb, there was this hole in its buttock, a deep wound that was infested with maggots. The skin was hanging off in ribbons. This lamb was seeking my help. It was desperately in need of help. We thought of putting it in the car and taking it back to the farmer, didn't we? And then we thought, oh, the stench is just so bad, we can't bring it in the car. So we rang up the farmer and said, come and help one of your lambs. It was quite distressing to drive off for our family. We had tears coming into the eyes thinking, this poor lamb. But I went away thinking, man, this, is, this lamb, this is such a good analogy of me. In sin without Christ, being eaten alive from the inside, in my soul by sin without Christ. We need a deliverance from sin, not only from the punishment of sin because of the debt that comes from our sin, we also need deliverance from the power of sin because when sin gets into us, it eats us up and will lead us all the way into death and hell. The third chapter of the Lamb is when Jesus, in Luke 22, he is actually presiding over the Passover meal. He's with his disciples in the upper room, and they're going through the ceremony of this Passover that's been 3,000 years old, or 2,000 years, I think. Um, and he's speaking about the bread. He says, this isn't the bread of the affliction, of the slavery. He says, this is my body, broken for you. And then he springs the cup. He says, this is my blood that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. But missing in all the accounts of the Gospels is what? The lamb. Where's the lamb? What's a Passover meal without a lamb? But we're meant to see when we read those Gospel accounts in Luke 22, the lamb is intentionally missing from those accounts because... The lamb is present with them. He's the one leading the meal. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no lamb at the table because Jesus is right there. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let's remember that. We take the body and the blood of Christ. Where's the lamb? He's present with us by his spirit. So Jesus, in the third chapter, we realize that Jesus is the Lamb of God that that Abraham told his son Isaac about. He said, Isaac, God himself will provide the Lamb. The saying, the Lord will provide, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The third chapter shows us that Jesus is that Lamb. A little beautiful animal could never remove the debt of our sin. But... The Son of God could. The Lamb of God could. He is the Lamb who was destroyed, whose blood is now available to the world, to anyone who would take refuge in him. So what do you want? Do you want to be desired to be wanted? Not just the good, but everything, the bad and the ugly? Well, look at the Lamb of God. Six months into my turmoil that I was talking about, I saw the lamb. I saw his arms that were outstretched on that cross embracing me while he was being destroyed as my substitute. And it was incredible to know that the punishment of my sin was being taken away, that the debt that I owed was paid for on that cross by the Lamb of God. Have you come to the Lamb of God? But there's a fourth chapter. Because this Lamb, as we read at the start in Revelation, when John sees the vision of the Lamb, it says, I saw a Lamb that appeared as though it had been slain. Because he's alive. He rose from the dead, dead after paying our debt of sin on that cross. And now he gives the spirit to us. And that is what he says in verse 33 of John chapter 1. So the big idea of John chapter 1, what we're talking about is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Twice he says this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second big idea, John says, man, I came baptizing with water. I'm nothing special. I just came to show you that you need to be given the forgiveness of God. In that day, people were baptizing themselves to be cleansed. It wasn't common for someone else to baptize you. And John comes baptizing them. And they're like, what? So he's preparing the way to go, you need someone else to cleanse you. I can't do it. I'm just with water. But one comes after me who's greater than me because he's before me who will baptize you with the Spirit. And that is what Jesus does right now. As the risen Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, he is now risen and giving the Holy Spirit. Not only does he pay our debt, he he takes it from us onto him. He then deposits into us his righteousness, his infinitely valuable spirit. The inheritance that belongs to him, he gives to us. His own spirit, so that we can, what does it say in the start of John? To everyone who believed in his name, to everyone who received him, he gave the right 
to become children of God through the adoptive spirit of God. So what do you want? How can you not want this lamb? Behold him, John says. And that means more than just look at him, observe him, you know, look at the gospel. Oh, that's a nice story. That's a nice message. It means fall on him. Let him embrace you. We don't come to him with uh, a nice record, with full hands, as if he would want anything from us. We come him with we come to him with empty, messy hands. Ray Oatland puts it like this. He's a, a pastor in the States. He says, Say to him, Can I be your mess? And hear him say, Yes, I am a lamb. I got messed up for you. Just come to me. See, this risen lamb, he's gentle and lowly of heart, and he wants to give you rest an embrace that will transform you at the deepest level and a love that will move in you to be a person who embraces others and to embrace one another as a church to be humble and gentle with the hurting forgiving as he has forgiven us What do you want? Well, I know what you need is the Lamb of God. I need him. What do you want? Embrace. To be noticed, to be wanted, to be loved. It's the Spirit of God embracing you right into the heart of the family of the Trinity. Receive him today. Believe in him and you will be a child of God. And if you are already, in 2022... Let's rest in his love for us. Let's rest and embrace his embrace of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be open uh, and honest about who we are. Thank you that um, we don't have to be so obsessed about telling our stories because you have, we have the story of the lamb, of your precious son who... You did not withhold the one you love, your own son. You, you gave him up all the way to death for us. And that, Jesus, you willingly did it for us. Who else loves us like you? Help us to rest in that embrace and that love this, this year and make us a people who embrace others, who are gentle with the lowly and hurting and are forgiving as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen.